So this is Ecclesiastes for Beginners. This is lesson number three in that series. The title of this lesson, The Pursuit of Meaning Through Work. And we're going to be looking at chapter two, beginning in chapter two and in verse 12. So we are reviewing that part of Solomon's journal where he is describing his experiences and his conclusions concerning the different lifestyles that he has examined. So the pursuit of pleasure, we talked about last time that he examined the pursuit of pleasure. And the pursuit of pleasure has taught him that although it was enjoyable, pleasurable experiences cannot be accumulated in order to produce satisfaction, lasting satisfaction and joy. They are fleeting, they're transitory things that have no lasting or transforming value. You're not transformed by pleasurable experiences. Next, he goes on to survey life lived wisely or foolishly. Foolishly meaning carefree, no thought for tomorrow, a little recklessly, and see which is better. And after this conclusion, he considers the idea of work and he makes notations as to his findings along the way. So let's begin with Solomon's thoughts on a life of wisdom and folly in chapter two, beginning in verse 12. He says, So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So he begins by remarking that he is alone. He decides which lifestyle he leads. He's going to choose to live wisely or foolishly. No one's going to dictate this to him. He's the king. He he leads and the others follow. And at first glance, he says, it seems that to live wisely is better. The wise man thinks. He avoids the pitfalls of life and thus demonstrates the superiority of the wise lifestyle. The fool, he says, is always in trouble, always dealing with problems, usually self-inflicted because of his carelessness, his foolishness, greed, pride, so on and so forth. So let's keep reading, see what else he finds out. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. So once he goes beyond this thought, however, he realizes that death is going to be the end of both the fool and the wise man. And so there's no real advantage to living wisely because it can't overcome the final destiny of everybody, which is death. So you you live wisely or you live foolishly, it doesn't matter. In the end, both the wise man and the fool, they they both die. So wisdom and its practice or lack of practice is also vanity because it cannot protect you, no matter how wise you are, it can't protect you against death. He goes on to say, for there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. So to make matters worse, 
Not only do both the wise and the foolish die, both of them are forgotten. Perhaps one a little more easily than the other, but eventually both the wise and the fool are forgotten. Given enough time, both are swallowed up in history and their lives and their memories are extinguished. You know, uh, I, I, I was teaching a class of, of younger people, you know, teenagers and young adults once in a and, and I was making some reference and I said, uh, so just like John Wayne movies. And I had this look, you know, people looking at me, John, who's John Wayne? <laughs> I, you know, I didn't think the day would come that I would mention John Wayne and there were people who would not know who he, who he is. This also happened in a class when I mentioned the Beatles once. Yeah, exactly. So one person actually said, who are the Beatles? I mean, you know, you'd think that there would be nobody on earth who would not know who the Beatles are or Elvis. And yet even the most famous eventually, you know, their memory uh, evaporates. And of course this realization by Solomon, uh, it drives him to despair. I think this is one of the saddest moments of this book. You know, he's just in such despair. And so he goes on now to the pursuit of meaning through work. Solomon considers not only work in this section, but the result of work and the context in which a man's life is played out, which is time. Uh, both chapter two and three conclude with some insights about what he has learned thus far. So now he's going to talk about the fruit of one's labor, beginning in verse 18. He says, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. So the realization that the wise and the fool both die turns his attention to the work that both of them do. If they both die, then the fruit of their labor will be left behind, no matter how well or not well they, they live, no matter how much they you know, gathered or not, whatever they had, they're going to leave behind. Verse 19, he says, and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. So who knows if a wise man's labor will not be left in the hands of a fool after he's gone. So what's the point of wise and meaningful work? You know, I leave it behind and at least if I knew somehow it would continue to grow, but I have no guarantee of that. Verse 20, therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great a great evil. Another despairing thought is to work well and hard to gain and to see it left to one who did not earn the profit. We see this all, this all the time, right? People who leave fortunes earned from hard work in the hands of children who never work and whose only activity is to spend their father's or mother's hard-earned money. <clears throat> I love that license plate that says, you know, I'm spending my children's inheritance. You know, that's, I think that thought goes into this. So we go on to verse 22 and 23. He says, for what does man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days and his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest, 
This too is vanity. So while he's alive and active in work, which itself is hard, he says, he worries at night about the work, the stress of it, and the concern that he's already mentioned. So he, you know, he says, what a life. Uh, you're wise, you're doing your best, you're working hard, you're building up your, your whatever, your fortune, your business, and you work hard during the daytime, you're stressed at night, you worry about it, if it'll succeed or not. And all of this effort, what happens? You die, you can't take it with you, and you leave it to somebody who'll just spend it or waste it away. You know? And the, the thought of that just, you know, drives him to deeper desperation. And of course, historically, Solomon, he knew firsthand about his heir's propensity for foolishness and waste. If you read you know, Solomon's life and the, the ones that inherited the, the throne and so on and so forth, Rehoboam, his son, foolishly plunged Israel into civil war in the very first year of his reign and he had to plunder the temple's gold in order to pay off the Egyptian army to protect him from the threat of foreign invasion brought about by the turmoil that he caused. So I mean one year, Solomon reigned for 40 years. He built a magnificent temple. He amassed a fortune. He was at peace with all of his neighbors. You know, he had all of this. And in the very first year of his reign, his son created, started a civil war, which broke the kingdom into two, north and south. And on top of that, you know, bankrupted the nation in order to protect him from other nations that wanted to come in and plunder them. One year, 40 years worth of work down the drain. One year when his son uh, took over. So at this point Solomon draws the first of a series of insights that he has gleaned from his observations on work and time. So let's read verse 24 and 25. He says, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? The ability to experience joy Right? Glad satisfaction, that's joy. The ability to experience joy is not related to what we do, no matter how hard we work or how great our achievements. The joy and the peace and the satisfaction we experience, Solomon says, is a gift from God. Whatever satisfaction we feel from what we do usually is only partial or fleeting. And there's usually a fly in the ointment. You, know, you say, oh, this would be perfect, except you know, wow, we have the perfect day. We have a beautiful picnic. We, everybody's here for uh, I don't know, our, our 25th wedding anniversary. We've rented the park. It's all wonderful. One thing, it's raining. <laughs> there's always a fly in the ointment. There's always something, right? Solomon's saying the peace and the satisfaction and the joy that we feel as a gift from God, however, are present because we experience a relationship with Him. He's trying to say, well he's not trying, he's saying here that the ability to enjoy what you have, the ability to enjoy it, God gives you that ability. If you don't have a relationship with Him, you can't have the ability to maximize your enjoyment of what you have here. And so What are the things that come from God? Well, we experience the relationship of joy in several ways with God. We experience it through salvation. 
the joy and the relief and the gratitude we feel knowing that we're forgiven for our sins. That joy, that peace, that feeling of safety, nobody can, nobody can give you that other than God through salvation and no one can take that away from you. No one has the power to take that away from you. And so if no one can take your salvation away from you, then no one can take away the joy and the peace and the feeling of safety that you have because of it. Also, um, uh, hope, the hope, the peace and satisfaction and joy we feel because we have a hope of heaven. The confidence and the courage that that gives us to face death. You know, I've, I've listened to or you know, met many Christians and been with them when they were going through serious illness and death was uh, you know, imminent. And they would invariably say, I, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm, what I'm afraid of is the pain. I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm afraid that it'll hurt. But the dying itself, the crossing over, I'm not afraid of that. I'm, I'm anxious to go. Unlike people that I have also seen who have no faith, who don't have salvation, who don't have that hope you know, that Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that we shouldn't be like those who have no hope. He was referring to the Gentiles, referring to unbelievers. Well, they, they want to hang on as long. Don't, I don't, I'm not signing the DNR. I want every breath. I want to, I want to hang in there. I want to take every opportunity to live as long as I can because this is all I've got. The joy and other positive experiences that we have because of insight. The pure joy of having our eyes open to the truth about life and ourselves, spiritual life, spiritual things through the presence of the Holy Spirit within us and as the Spirit teaches us through God's word. Everything we learn in God's word, once we learn it, it it kind of snaps into place and then it doesn't have to be undone. You know, um, maybe 40 years ago, I realized that Jesus was the Son of God. I mean, I I was taught it, you know, going to Catholic school, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, the catechism, page nine, uh, the, the chapter about Jesus. Question number one, who is Jesus? Answer, Jesus is the Son of God. Number two, question, you know, the, the catechism, you know, that's, how, that's how we learned in, in Catholic school. So I knew you know, Jesus, the Son of God, the answer to the catechism question. I could answer that. I could pass a test. But I didn't know it like here. And for me, the conversion, you know, the, 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 the journey to find God began with the realization one day, just, just hit me one day. Oh, oh, you mean Jesus, that Jesus, he's God. Imagine, <laughs> it finally, you know, the two connectors finally connected and it was like, oh, he's God. Now I get it. He's God. And from there, you know, searching through the scriptures and you know, that journey to here this morning. 
But that realization, oh Jesus, He is God. No one ever took that away from me. That never changed. The beauty of that is there's no new edition of the Bible that's going to come out where Jesus isn't the Son of God. Nobody's going to say, oops, oh sorry, we made a mistake, sorry. So what we know and what we learn from God's word gives us great strength and courage. The insight, every new insight we gain strengthens our hope. And then of course, love. The peace, the joy that comes from acting out of love, serving, bearing each other's burdens, forgiving one another, sharing, whether it's money or time or the gospel. The experience of our relationship with God through Christ in these ways, through salvation and hope and insight and love, the experience of our relationship with God in whatever form it takes This is the thing that produces the joy and satisfaction and peace and confidence that all of us so desperately seek and so many mistakenly seek in sensual pleasures or as as Solomon is saying here, in work, in career, in personal achievement. That's the point. That was a long point, but that's the point that he's making. Solomon said, I did the work. And I, I, and I achieved a lot and it gave me you know, a measure of satisfaction, but it didn't give me contentment. I didn't get any joy out of it. Because why? Because I'm going to die. I can't bring it with me. I may leave it to somebody who will spoil it. You know, whatever. All kinds of reasons why. So the satisfaction we seek is only possible in an experienced relationship with Christ. And that experienced relationship is tangible, how? In love, in joy, in hope, in faith, in confidence. And this experience is a free gift from God. He gives us freely the opportunity to experience a relationship with Him through Jesus which ultimately produces that experience of love and joy and peace and patience and faith, so on and so forth, that we are looking for. That experience that satisfies us. Now the mistake is thinking that we work at a variety of things and that we draw on these outward things in order to create an inward experience. So we think we're going to find contentment and peace and joy from the outside in. When I'm promoted, when I finish, when I make more money, when when the business is going good, when the two businesses are going good, okay, when the four businesses I own are going good from the outside in. We delude ourselves into thinking that if we do what we do faster or better or more effectively or more profitably, this will create the feeling. In other words, if we improve the outside, it will necessarily improve the inside. Wrong. That's just wrong. When you improve the outside only, The momentary internal benefit will improve, 
But new problems and failure to remember old lessons will require constant monitoring and tinkering and improving. Why do you think there's always new tide? Why do you think every year or so there's new and improved tide detergent? I was a little boy, you know, 11 years old, going on a field trip with my, my I was 12, uh, with our class at school. And there was a little girl there that I wanted to impress. Oh my, she was such a darling girl in my class. I wanted to impress her. So I was going to wear my, my uh, light green corduroy pants for some reason or other. I thought somehow that would be impressive to her. But there was a problem with the corduroy pants. There was a grass stain on it because I, you know, playing baseball. So I said to my mother, mom, you know, you, you, I need, I'm wearing these on Saturday for the field trip. She said, OK, fine, I'll wash them. I'll make sure they're ready. Oh, mom, mom, you, you got to use the new Tide because I'd seen on TV the new Tide. Well, I got a box of detergent, all or whatever. No, mom, no, no, the new tide is going to do it. It didn't do it. I wore the pants. I can't remember the girl's name. (laughs) But that memory demonstrates, you know, I remember the new tide. I was 12 and there was the new tide. And since that time, what, more than 50 years, you know how many new tides there's been? Why is that? Well, marketing consultants exist because of this principle, the temporariness of satisfaction. Think about cars, four wheels and a steering wheel. They go from A to B at no faster than 55 miles an hour pretty much anywhere in town. Why do we need so many models? Why does the model change every year? Oh, the new model. Oh, the brand new model. Yeah, well, does it have four wheels? Yep. Does it have a steering wheel? Yep. Will it go 55 miles an hour from point A to point B? Yep. What's the difference? Oh, $10,000. We're satisfied, yes but only for a short time. And so we think, oh, I'll fix it. I'll get something new. I'll I'll trade it. Trying to find some permanence in our satisfaction. I believe Solomon is saying that satisfaction and joy and peace works from the inside out, not from the outside in. It's the experience of Christ, freely given, experienced inwardly, that radiates outwardly, that enables us to enjoy the externals. My faith in Christ enables me to enjoy my food, (laughs) my job, my home. The joy in my heart because of Christ makes me hear the wind blowing in the trees and enjoy it while I praise God who sends the wind and who created the trees. Otherwise it would simply be noise. Nice noise but just noise. Molecules, sound waves, endless repetition without meaning as Solomon says. 
My inside joy and peace colors everything I see and touch and experience with either appreciation or hope. I appreciate the good and I hope and pray for the bad. The externals, whether it's work or anything else, are imposed with joy and satisfaction from the inside. I work on the inside in order to improve my vision of the outside and to enjoy the outside. I don't enjoy the outside more by getting more of the outside. (laughs) I enjoy the outside more because I improve the inside. Verse 26. Solomon says, for to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. So the second insight that Solomon shares at this point of his journal is this. Those who are right with God derive benefit from all that they do not only what they succeed at. Big difference. In the world, the only joy you get is when you win. Solomon is saying here, but if you have a relationship with God, you can find joy in everything, not just the things that you succeed at. Now, it doesn't mean that only Christians succeed. However, it does mean that judging by the standard of personal satisfaction and peace and joy and not just productivity or profit and loss, the Christian enjoys and profits from what he does regardless of his margin of worldly success. Whatever he has, he enjoys it more than whatever the sinner has. That's the point. The sinner ultimately loses his soul and nothing he has amassed will buy it back for him. Jesus says, what will you exchange for your soul? What will you give in exchange for your soul? There's even no guarantee that all of his profit from hard work and worry will be there for him to enjoy even here on earth. God has the power to turn his profit over to the one he loves uh, who didn't necessarily earn it. Remember that parable of the talents? You know? The Lord gave the one talent of the lazy slave to the slave who already had 10 talents. Matthew 25. That's the principle that Solomon is saying here. Our experience with Christ gives meaning to our work. It helps us persevere in it when it is difficult. It grants us the ability not to have to rely on our roles or our careers as the source of our joy, but rather an extension of who we are. I'm a minister. That's an extension of who I am. The inner peace and joy that I have comes from my relationship with Christ as a Christian, not how well I'm succeeding or not succeeding in my ministry career. You know, we stress out because our role or career becomes the essence of who we are and we judge ourselves according to what we do. That's why more women are having heart attacks and male oriented problems these days. They begin, they're beginning to identify themselves and their worth with what they do. They spend many years in career crisis mode, you know, like men have always done. 
you know, in their 30s and 40s. Now women are starting to have heart attacks and heart problems and high cholesterol, which were traditionally male problems. Because women are now you know, doing the same thing as men have done traditionally, chasing careers. And for women, this problem is aggravated by childbearing needs, you know, the clock, and the conflict of competing roles. She is a mother and she loves being a mother and she wants to be a mother. And for whatever reason, some, some women have to work, they choose to work. I'm not, I'm not you know, denigrating that. I'm just saying it's even more difficult because she has the burden of a career if she's pursuing that, but at the same time, the natural burden of being a mom. So men and women need to realize that roles and careers are not the essence of who they are. The essence of being is rooted in one's relationship with God. And it flows outward from this to color whatever you do and wherever you do it. That's the, you know, that's the order. So here are some of the points that Solomon is trying to make in his writings about work. A couple of summary points and I'll leave you the lesson. Point number one. The same joy and satisfaction that all people need to be genuinely happy and at peace is available in the same quality and quantity for everyone, no matter what you do. It is not reserved for the rich and the successful or for the highly trained. It is within reach for everyone. The exact same feeling is possible for everyone, whether you work at the White House as president or Walmart as cashier. The same degree of contentment and joy and peace is available to you. As a believer in Christ. Number two. The joy and satisfaction is not a product of career success or ability. The feeling of satisfaction that most seek through successful or challenging work can only be found in a relationship with God. In our time, the relationship is expressed in a relationship with Jesus Christ through obedient faith. You know, that's the inside out idea. The inside out idea. I've, I've known you know, people who have worked for 30 years at something that they hated. They hated doing it. They stuck it out for whatever reason. Then when they retired, they said, I'm going I'm to now finally do what I want to do to find happiness and satisfaction. And they open up, I don't know, a store. They start selling real estate. Five years down the road, <laughs> they hate that job just as much as the other job. Why? Because they're trying to find the thing that God gives you in the career. It doesn't work that way. And I'm not saying we, our job doesn't give us a measure of satisfaction. Of course it does. I mean, I, I wouldn't do this job if I didn't like this job. I'd do something else. We're talking about lasting satisfaction. 
we're talking about peace of mind and contentment no matter how you know success or no success you know uh, you're able to do exactly what you want or you're forced to do what you don't you know really like to do but you've got to do it anyways you know to put food on the table and then thirdly it's the relationship that blesses the work once you have a relationship with God what you do and how you do it and where you do it will not alter your basic joy and peace and satisfaction. When you understand this, when it comes to work, simply choose what suits your talents and circumstances and do it knowing that your work is a blessing and opportunity for satisfaction, but not the source of your satisfaction. You know? God will bless you. God gives us the ability to enjoy what we have. And I, you know, I'll tell you a personal experience. It took me a long time to learn that idea. I, you know, I wish I would have known that you know, 40 years ago. Because I, I was one of those guys. You know, different jobs, different career tracks, just couldn't find the thing. You know. When I understood finally that God is the one that enables me to enjoy what I have, regardless of what it is. The wife that I have, the children that I have, the home that I have, the life that I have, the health that I have, the whatever I have. Those things in themselves do not create the contentment and joy within me. God gives us that. He enables us to enjoy those things. So someone will say, well, yeah, how, how do I get that? Well, ask. <laughs> ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open. These are the things we ask for. Don't ask for more things. Ask God to enable you to find joy and satisfaction in what He's already given to you. That's the secret. Okay, well, we continue with uh, Solomon uh, next time, and I think we're going to be talking about time. You know that wonderful passage? There's a time for everything. We're going to be looking at that next time. So, appreciate your attention. Thank you.